Linda is in Tenerife, as I said this morning. Haven't anybody have heard any word? What, what's, the, what's the latest update? Ah. Flying? Oh. Hoping is, the, hoping is the word, I would say. <laughs> yeah. But uh, accommodation-wise, are they okay? Are they? Uh, I suppose there's nobody replacing the thing in the hotels. I suppose all the hotels is just, there's nobody flying into. Otherwise, they'd be firing you out the door, wouldn't they? But there's, there's nobody to come in, so I suppose that's one good thing. But then all the flights is backed up, aren't they? The, I mean, the whole rota and the whole agenda's all changed, so it's going to be difficult for a lot of people. But anyway, that's not our problem. Uh, we're here. So come with me, please, to the book of Acts, chapter 20. Acts 20. Oh, yeah, the, the baptism service. Uh, again, and uh, we're heading there on the... Uh, the last Wednesday night of this month, I think it's the 28th, and uh, we'll give you more details uh, over the next week or so, we'll, we'll work out logistics and how we're going to get there with the bus and times to pick up and all of that, and uh, Martin, and, or sorry, Tony and Johnny uh, wants to, you're going to arrange them to, to meet everybody Wednesday, this Wednesday, so those of you who are going to go through the waters of baptism, Tony and Johnny is going to be with you on Wednesday and just to share with you and tell you what it's about and what's expected from you on the night and what you're to wear and how you're to dress and how you're to behave and all the rest of it. And uh, But you really are going to enjoy it. And it's a lovely set. It's a beautiful church. And and uh, while you're while you're actually in the baptistry in the tank, there'll be a little camera. And so everybody else will be able to see it on the big screen. All right. So we'll be able to have a good look at you uh, doing that. Uh, who's doing the dipping? Are you in the tank too, Johnny? Why not? Isn't it great? I see I'm beyond all of that now. Isn't that great? I, I don't have to do this anymore. Remember Clifford, you and me? We're not doing we're, we're, we have passed it the, the baton over to these fellas. It's great. We'll just go and enjoy it. Clifford and I one time, where was it? We were Crawfordsburn. Uh, I when we, was it was that in was that was it November? So it was a, it was a crazy time of the year. And so we get into the water and we're heading out and he said to me, he says, see if you ever suggest this again, I'm going to hit you over the head with a two before. <laughs> we were freezing perish, weren't we? Because we had to stand there the longest and it was absolutely perishing it was. But it was good fun too, wasn't it? It was great. Those were the days. <laughs> Glad those days are over, but there you are. Those were the days. But anyway, where were we? That's not in tape. Sure, it's not, Martin. You, you, what? No, come on, cut that off. All right. Acts chapter 20 and verse 22. Paul speaking said, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God. Particularly, just that one phrase, 
And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. The Bible makes it very, very clear that the Christian life is a paradox. Uh, Jesus said that you give to receive. You die to live. You serve to lead. With humility comes exaltation. And so the kingdom has entirely different principles by which it's governed. I often say from this pulpit that Christianity, among all of the world's religions, is unique, and it's unique for a variety of reasons. Not the least of which is this idea that in Christianity we have a remarkable freedom that you don't have in any other religion. Jesus said, whom the Son makes free is free indeed. We're not governed by rights and rituals and regulations. It's not like Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or even Judaism of which Christianity grew out of. Because in all of those religions, there are all kinds of regulations and rites and rituals and acts to perform. And the only two things that the New Testament tells us and obligates us is water baptism and the Lord's table. It's the only two ordinances of the New Testament. And so there is a remarkable sense of freedom that we, f we have. Now, actually, we don't truly need any special kind of building. Uh, no particular architecture is required. In fact, we only use a building for convenience because we all know that the church is not the bricks and mortar. The church is the living stones. Us, the believers in Christ. And in fact, there's lots of nations today, like China, for example, that most believers in China doesn't have a building, a designated building to go to. They meet in their homes because the government will not let them have it unless they're registered with the government and they can keep controlling them. If for some reason or other, our government went tyrannical and decided that Christians could no longer meet in buildings like this and we lost this building, it would be inconvenient. But it wouldn't be the end of the church because we would meet in our homes. We'd find some way of meeting together as believers. And so there's a remarkable freedom. You know, even when you think about how churches are governed, how they're run, put it that way, it's tremendous the, 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 the variety of ways that, that we can use. The Presbyterians, for instance, the, the presbytery, the, the, the ruling elders, or the congregational churches, the congregation has the final say. You know, or, or the brethren who don't believe in having pastors or ministers. You know, and yet we all love the Lord and serve God. And it, and it gives us the freedom and the variety to have different modes of how to run a church. Some are good, some are not so good. But we have a choice. There's no set way. 
New Testament doesn't leave out a set way. It gives us guidelines, but there's great variety. And so we have all of that at our disposal. When you think of worship, there's all kinds of ways and different streams of worship. There's the liturgical, that the, the more higher church mode uses. And then there is those, and there's a couple that comes to this church that come on Sunday morning, have been coming for years, and their whole background is Reformed Presbyterian, which, as far as I know, doesn't use any, uh, any music, uh, if I'm correct. If I've made a mistake on that, I'm sorry. Uh, but they just sing the Psalms. Uh, and they sing the Psalms without accompaniment, a musical accompaniment. And it's beautiful. I, I've been in that, been in the church and heard that, and it's beautiful. You may think that's a bit strange, but to them it's natural and it's the right thing for them to do, and that's fine. God, God's okay with that. <laughs> he really is. But then there's us. Well, what can you say about us? Well, as I often say, you go from smells and bells to happy clappy and everything in between. And the amazing thing is that, that, that it's okay with God. He allows us the different freedom of being able to worship in different ways. And that's fine. That's okay. That's the variety. That's the freedom that the Lord has given us. And it's remarkable indeed. And yet, even with all that freedom and grace, yet, here's another one of those paradoxes. Because Paul spoke about it here. Even though Paul said that we were free, even though Paul understood and preached freedom in Christ, yet he says here about being bound in the Spirit. And in another place, he goes further. He said, I am a bond slave of Christ. I was a bond slave. In Bible days, somebody could become a slave or a servant to some master for a variety of reasons. Sometimes out of debt. Maybe they owed a great sum and they couldn't pay it, so they had to go and work for somebody and work off their debt and they become their slave or their servant till that was paid off. Maybe for other reasons. But sometimes if the debt was paid or the other reason was no longer valid, and the slave or the servant had an opportunity to go free, entirely free. But if the master was good to them, and they enjoyed serving that master, sometimes they would say, well, I want to be your bond slave. I I'm choosing to stay with you. I want to serve you. I choose to serve you. And there was a little ceremony that went with that, which we'll not go into tonight because it's not our subject. And so, Paul knew that he was free. He knew that he wasn't a slave or a servant as such. Whom the Son makes free is free indeed. Jesus said, I call you no longer servants, but friends. So he knew all of that, but yet he chose. He voluntarily chose by his own volition to be a bond slave, a servant of Jesus Christ. And he was very, very strong about that. Now, what does this term bound mean? It means to be confined. It means to be restricted. It means to be tied to. It means to be limited within certain confines. So that doesn't sound much like freedom. But hold on, listen to me. Like a slave to his master. 
or like a book to its cover, or like a field to its fence. There is confinement, certain limitations, restrictions. And this is the paradox of the Christian life. There's tremendous freedom in Christ. You will not find any religion in the world with such freedom as Christianity. And yet, and yet, there are restrictions. Good restrictions. Now we love our children, don't we? And we give them certain freedoms because they've got to grow. But there are restrictions that we must place upon them that wisdom would dictate. Now in our lives we can choose. And sometimes Christians, when they discover the freedom that they have in Christ, think, well, I'm free to do whatever I want, however I want, whatever way I want, when I want, and you're not. You're not. If you're going to be a Christian, an effective Christian, I'm not saying you're not going to get to heaven, but if you're going to be an effective Christian, then you better understand that there are going to be restrictions and limitations that you need to put upon yourself for him. Paul says, look, I'm free. I'm no longer a slave. I choose to be Christ's slave. I choose to come under his rule and his lordship. And that's what I'm getting at tonight. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where it talks about the Lord's table, where uh, Paul goes into it in some detail. And you know that in the Corinthian church, there was all kinds of problems. Uh, these people had come out of paganism. And having come out of that, and having been made free, when they would come together, Somehow or other, this freedom they felt they had became like a license to do whatever they felt they could do. And Paul had to rebuke them for it. And particularly, believe it or not, when it came to actually meeting and breaking bread together, which was to be a very sensitive, spiritual moment on focusing on Christ, it became a ridiculous thing to them. I mean, they were just messing it up big time. And so Paul speaks to them here in 1 Corinthians 11. And if I just quickly read this, we know this anyway, but verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Now, before we go any further, right there is where a lot of Christians come under a false sense of condemnation because they feel, I'm not worthy. I'm unworthy to take this cup. The fact of it is, you'll never be worthy to take the cup. God makes you worthy to take the cup. And there's a big difference. It says in an unworthy manner. That's what he said. So, it's, Paul's not saying here that we can't come 
and take the cup. Or that when we do come every week to partake of the Lord's table, that we're to feel this tremendous sense of guilt. God help me, I'm not worthy to take this. You're never going to be worthy to take it. He makes you worthy to take it in Christ. But it's the unworthy manner that people come, and this is what he's getting at here if, if we just follow on in a moment. So he said, Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So he wants us to eat of the bread and drink of the cup, but he wants us to examine ourselves. Are we doing it in an unworthy manner? For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning, not understanding the Lord's body. Now he's not just talking about this piece of bread representing the Lord's body here. He's talking about the Lord's body, the people. We're the Lord's body. Not understanding our position and our placement and our responsibility and how we react and respond to one another. He goes on to say, For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Now, why did he say that? Why did he say, listen, when you come together, wait for one another. And if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. Well, if we read earlier the passage from verse 17, he says, now, and give these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I part believe it. For there are also factions among you, and those who are approved, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? For on eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. And then he goes on, for I received of the Lord. So what was happening was they would meet and they would have food to eat and it would be Christian fellowship. But those who had much, they would bring much and they would eat it themselves. And those who had little had hardly anything to eat. And those who had plenty went ahead and gorged themselves. And he says, hold on a minute. He said, this is wrong. This is wrong. And of course, then they would, at the end of it, they would start to break bed and remember the Lord's death after not having thought about each other for one second. After having, in a sense, despised each other. He says, this is wrong. This is an unworthy manner. You're restricted. We're limited on how we respond and react to one another. Too many Christians to say, well, you know, I, I just love the Lord and really, I don't really want to get on with other Christians. I don't really want to go to church even. I don't want to bother other believers. I just get on with the Lord. But that doesn't work because Christianity is not just vertical, it's horizontal. And Paul was saying here, hey, listen, you can't live as individual Christians. You've got to live as a body. And when you come together and meet together, you've got to wait on one another. You've got to consider one another. You've got to think about one another. Because otherwise, it's an unworthy manner you're eating. And so, just a little example of some of the restrictions 
and limitations that God puts upon us. Now, a man can be bound by a number of different things. A man can be bound by sin. He can be bound to self. He can be bound to Satan. Or he can be bound to the Savior. And it's our choice. Whichever one we serve, that's the one that we'll be bound to. If we serve sin, we're bound to sin. If we serve ourselves, we're bound to ourselves. If we serve the devil, we're bound to the devil. But if we serve the Savior, we're bound to the Savior. And we've got a choice in this. We choose how we're going to be bound. Now, Jesus in 8, John 8, 34 says that if we, if we serve sin, we become the servant of sin. So whatever or whoever you serve, you become the servant of that thing or that one. Now, Paul picks up on this and he expands a little bit. And that's what I want to show you now over there in Romans chapter 6. Now, I'm going to read here from verse 11. And I'm going to read this in the New Living Translation because it just makes it a little bit more clear. And I'm going to read from verse 11. You can follow on on whatever version you've got. But from verse 11, here's what it says. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and live and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to your sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Now, notice he's using this term freedom. We're no longer under the law, but we've got the freedom now of God's grace. But, verse 15, Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. And then notice this. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey. You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God that leads to righteous living. Thank God. Once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. Paul said, listen, you've got a choice. You can be a slave to sin, or you can be a slave to the Savior. It's up to you. Because of the weakness of your human nature, I am using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all of this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led to ever deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living, so that you will become holy. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from obligation to do right. In fact, whenever we were unsaved and in the world, we didn't think about God, we didn't think about consequences of sin, we just, we just thought about ourselves, we thought, this is what I want to do, it doesn't really matter about anybody else. You never even thought about God or the things of God, this is what he's saying. 
When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You're now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end, things that end in eternal doom. But now you're free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see here that we have a choice of what we're going to become bound to. You and I will be bound to something or someone. So we've got to choose. I choose, apart from Christ, I choose, and I chose this 1967, July the 8th, to be bound to my wife. And that little gold band on the third finger of my left hand is the sign of that choice. And thank God it's still on there. But I made a choice to bind myself to her. She made a choice to bind herself to me. Now, all kinds of things in life will try to break that choice and break that bond, but we chose. And thank God, by the grace of God, we're still together. So you're going to be bound to something or someone. So you've got to choose because something or someone will demand your attention and your time and your energies and your money and your thoughts and your attitudes and everything in you. Something or someone will demand that from you and you will be bound to that. Paul says, make sure you're bound to righteousness. Make sure you're bound to the Savior because all other stuff leads to death. This leads to life. That leads to darkness. This leads to light. That leads to Satan. This leads to the Savior. And it's as stark and as real as that. Jesus himself was bound to a human body. Did you ever think about the, the tremendous restrictions and limitations that the Son of God put upon himself? He left the very right hand of the Father, the very throne room of heaven. He left all of that. Where he had myriads of angels at his command, he left all of that and came in a human body. God incarnated in a human body and became as a tiny little baby from the womb of Mary. So fragile. So precious. And was born in a stable. And grew up with all the limitations of a human body, he wept, he slept, he ate, he laughed, he cried. He worked in a carpenter shop every day with his hands, making, shaping. And I'm sure there's times he cut himself. I'm sure there was times he went home aching, sore, maybe working 12 hours. And he was tired. He slept on a boat. You know, he, he limited himself. He, he fenced himself in on a human body. He bound himself to it. And then eventually, and he knew this was going to happen all of his life, he knew that he'd be bound to a cross. Now, I don't mean bound in the sense of even nailed to the cross. 
But he was bound to go to the cross, and he knew he was. He knew he was. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I'm straightened until it's accomplished. How I am limited and confined and restricted till this is accomplished. I can't do anything else till this is done. I've come to do the work of the Father. This is it. I've got to do this. You know, the night is coming when no man can work, so while it is day, I've got to do this. So he was bound and restricted and limited in a human body. Now you understand why he, in that great prayer, why he prayed, God, I want to see, Father, I, I, want, I want these disciples of mine and the church that's us, I, I want them to see me in my glory which I had with you before the word began. I don't want him just to always think of me in this flesh body bound by this. By the way, he, he maintained that flesh body, but remember we said there last week at Easter, it was a resurrection body that was no longer limited as a strictly human body. It could walk through walls, could pass through walls. Now he says, I want them to see me in my glory, the glory that I had with you before the word began. I mean, it, what, what a relief it must have been to undo the shackles of the limitations that he had on earth, as a human being. So, we are free, and yet, we're bound. There's the paradox. How are we bound? Well, first of all, we're bound by the Holy Spirit. And Paul talks about it here in Acts 22, where we have been reading. We start in Acts 20, sorry, in Acts 20, Acts 20, I should say, in verse 22. We're going to look into 21 in a moment. See, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Now, Paul's saying here, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but this I know. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to end up in prison. In fact, that was a common occurrence for Paul. But he says, I know every city I go to, this is what's going to happen to me. How would you like to have a preacher's job like that? Hmm? Everywhere I go, this is what's going to happen. So he says, now I'm going bound in the Spirit. I know where I'm going. I have a rough idea what's going to happen to me. Don't know exactly, but I, I know certainly I'm going to be hurt. I'm going to be incarcerated. I'm going to be put into prison. I know that, but I'm bound in the Spirit. I'm bound to go. But then... He's talking here to the Ephesian elders. And of course, they're very sad that he's leaving them. And then you come into chapter 21. He's left them and he's coming into another part in the ship. And in verse 3, it says, Then we had sighted Cyprus. We passed on the left and sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there was a ship that was going to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. 
they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. And when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. They all accompanied us with wives and children. We were out of the city. We knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. And on the next day, we, who were Paul's companions, departed and came to Caesarea and entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus saith the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when we would not be persuaded, he would not be persuaded, we cease saying, the will of the Lord be done. Now, he said, I know when I go, there's going to be problems. I'm going to be persecuted, I'm going to be hurt, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be incarcerated, I'm going to be prison. So then there's one said to him, by the Spirit, do not go to Jerusalem. Then he goes on, he's in here in this house of Philip, Agabus the prophet comes and says, this is what's going to happen to you when you go to Jerusalem. And they all pleaded with him, don't go. Now the big question of course has always been, did he obey or disobey the Holy Spirit? Because there one group said, through the Spirit, don't go. But he was determined to go. In fact, it's almost as if he ignored that and says, I'm going. Agabus says, but this is what's going to happen when you go. And he says, listen, don't start crying. Don't break my heart. I'm going. It could be that the Holy Spirit was giving him the option, giving him the choice. And he decided, no, I'm going. I know what's going to happen. I know what I'm in for, so I'm going. And you know, he did go. And we believe he did go in the will of the Lord. And he did accomplish what the Lord wanted him to accomplish. But he was bound in the Spirit to go. And even though he may have been tested, and even though he had the opportunity to turn back, and even though when he was told what was happening, he could have turned back because it was his choice. But he says, no, I am bound in the Spirit to go. Sometimes in life and sometimes serving the Lord, there's going to be little tests that will come. We've got a choice. Will we be directed and led by the Spirit? Will we be bound by the Spirit? Or will we try to make life a little bit comfortable and easier for ourselves? Well, Paul wasn't of that sort. He says, I'm bound to do this. I'm going. I am bound by the Spirit. And boy, he did do it. And so the Holy Spirit gives us tremendous freedom. And yet, we're bound by the Holy Spirit. This is the paradox. 
But we're also bound by what I call a providence of God. So what do you mean by providence? I mean by God's dealings with us through circumstances of life to fulfill his purposes. You know that, that God often uses circumstances of life to fulfill his plans. He does this all the time. And sometimes, most times we should say, we don't really know it until after it's happened. You know, hindsight is always twenty twenty vision, isn't it? It's easy to look back, oh, the hand of the Lord was there. But at the time, maybe we weren't even aware of it. But we went on anyway, and we were in the will of purpose of God. And he used certain circumstances, certain things in our lives. You know, when you look back over your life, think of the people that you met at the right time in the right place. And because you met that person at the right time in the right place, how your life began to change, how the whole journey of life began to be different. See, this is all the providence of God. All things, Paul said, for the believer, work together for good to those who are called according to his purposes. Do you remember Moses and how at that particular time that Pharaoh was demanding that all the little baby boys would be slaughtered when they came from the womb? The word had gone to all the midwives to kill them. And how the midwives didn't really want to do that. And when little Moses was born, he was a beautiful, goodly child, the Bible says. And they spared him. And Moses' mother and father put him into a little basket of bulrushes and they floated them down the Nile and the Bible says they did it by faith trusting the providence of God and in the providence of God what happened that day at that particular time Pharaoh's daughter was bathing in the Nile and when she saw that little basket her heart went out to that little baby. And of course, Miriam, her Moses' big sister, was there and said, would you like a Hebrew nurse to look after that little baby? Oh yes, that would be lovely. I know such a one. And it was Moses' mother. But when you then jump forward and you see Moses as the great deliverer of God's people from Egypt, then you can see the providence of God. Then you can see the hand of God. Then you can see why they took that step of faith. Then you can see why Pharaoh's daughter was there that day at that time. Then you can see why God melted her heart to take that little child. This is the providence of God. This is God using circumstances in life. If ever there was the right person at the right time, it was Esther in the court of Ahasuerus. When Haman, who hated the Jews, was plotting their destruction, their annihilation. The Jews, as always as a nation, has come under threat by somebody somewhere to wipe them of the face of the earth. There's nothing new in that. The president of Iran wants to nuke them. And he means it. He's not kidding. But Esther was in the court. And she was a beautiful Jewess. And she's one of the king's many wives. Do you remember what her uncle said to her? Cut the long story short. He said, you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
God in his providential ways has brought you here to save this nation. But if you don't do it, if you don't go in and plead for them, if you don't do it, God will find another way. But you're the one. God has put you right in here. See, he recognized that. So many stories you could say about that. 22 years ago, Sally and I went to Palma, Mallorca. There was an IGO conference, and so we went along just to enjoy Christian fellowship. There was teaching at it in the mornings and the evenings. During the afternoon, you were free to go and enjoy the sights and lie on a beach if you wanted. In fact, mostly we had open airs on the beach, but that was another story. Police came along in those days wondering what you were up to. And uh, so it was a wonderful time. And we planned to go there and enjoy it and come back, and that would be it. But little did we know that in the providence of God, something was going to happen that week that would change our lives forever and actually would change the direction of this very church. Because one of the speakers was a little girl, young woman, She's only about five foot nothing. They went to the Philippines with a guitar to minister to the prisoners. She was a pastor's daughter from Manchester. And that's what she'd done in Manchester, go into prisons and sing and play her guitar. And all by herself, on her own, she went to go into the prisons because God had called her to it. And so she told her story. And we were really impressed thought this is wonderful and whenever we come back we started to send her some support from this church and that's as far as we were concerned was it she's doing a wonderful work we were highly impressed send her some money never knowing that in the providence of God that just a few years later Claire was only 13 at the time we were there a few years later she rang me up one day and she says David I'm, I'm coming into England I'm going to be taking some meetings. I would love to come to Ireland. Could you arrange an itinerary for me? I said, I'll do that. So I put together some meetings, phoned some of my pastor friends, told her the story. She says, right, let's get her booked up. And she came over, and Claire said, Dad, can I drive her around? She says, sure you can. <sighs> Within a week, we knew she'd caught the bug. This is all she could talk about. And so she said to that girl, she says, I, I want to go to the Philippines. And the girl was very wise. She says, well, I'll tell you what to do. You come over, just wait a little bit, and then come over because, you know, you hear me talking about it, but when you get there, it may not be what you think it's going to be. So you just come over and just get the feel and see what it's like. And then after you do that, let's see what happens. And uh, so she went as soon as possible. She saved up her pennies and she went. And whenever she came back, that was it. She just wanted to go there. And in fact, whenever she finished her degree, the week after she got her degree, she was gone. That was it. <laughs> and she's never come back except on furlough that she's doing now. Now, here's how that changed this church, in case you don't know this. Up until then, we only ever had given to missions. And we gave regularly and we gave well to missions. Every church should be a mission-given church. But nobody would go. And we preached it from this pulpit, and we invited people to come and talk about it, but nobody would go until she went. And after she went, 
everything began to change. And from that day to this, missions has become a major part of this ministry. All those years, Clifford, when we started, when we prophesied about this and nobody was going and the devil was mocking us about it, because this went on for years. You know what I believe? I believe God was saying, you see, you talk about it and you preach about it and you think it would be good for others to go, but what about your own? Would you be willing to let her go? Because she's going to go whether we let her go anyway. She was determined to go, but would you bless her going? Will you release her? And as soon as we released her, things began to change. Do you know that about almost 40 people in this church has gone on missions since that day? And before that day, nobody went. So what does that tell you? That tells you in the providence of God, God was working and God was waiting and God was saying, okay, you're talking about it. Now let's see you do it. You sow the first seed. You be first to give and then see what happens. And that's exactly what happened. So isn't it amazing in your lives we are bound by the providence of God? How that, when you look back over your life, you think, how, how did that happen? How did all that come together? How did I meet that person? You know, you know, you try to figure it all out. And then you've got to say, well, it's a God thing, isn't it? God was in that. God did that. And even though I didn't recognize it at the time, but he was in it. So all of us, to one degree or another, we're, we're bound by the providential hand of God. Steps of the good man are what? Ordered by the Lord. Abraham sent out his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. And, and, and he went out and, you know, he prayed. He says, Lord, well, what am I going to do? And, and then he had this idea. And then he said, I being in the way, the Lord led me. Now you can take that two ways. You can say, he said, I being in the way, the Lord led me. Or I being in the way, then the Lord led me. In other words, he went out, went out in obedience. And as he went out in obedience, then the Lord led him. I think that's really what happened. And so all of us, one way or another, were bound in the providence of God. Then finally, we'll close with this, we're bound by the call of God. By the call of God. Paul, throughout the New Testament, he speaks often about the call of God in his life and in our lives. Ephesians 4 and 1, you don't need to turn to this. He said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. <laughs> that was one of his favorite titles for himself, the prisoner of the Lord. <laughs> you can't get any more bound than a prisoner, sure you couldn't. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And then Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 11. <clears throat> we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith in power. In 1 Corinthians 1 in verse 
For you see your calling, brethren. But not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the things that are wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world. All to end up, he says, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Over and over and over again, Paul reiterates to the people of God that you are called. Actually, the word ecclesia is the called out people of God. The called out people. That's what the word means. So the church is the ecclesia. We are the called out. We're called out from this world, aren't we? We're separated from this world to serve the Lord, aren't we? So that means you are called. You say, well, I don't know what specifically I'm called to do. Well, there's a lot of things before you find out the specifics of it. There's a lot of stuff in here. You just got to read it and do it. That's part of the call. And if you're faithful in doing what you know to do, what you see in the word to do, then God will give you the specifics. But you've got to be faithful in this first. All of us, without exception, are called by God. We're called out of this world. We're called onto Him. We're called to serve Him. We're called to love Him. We're called to do His will and His purpose. Ah. I'm going to stop here because there's, there's more, but we're running out of time. So I'm going to stop. You choose tonight. Because if you don't make the act of choice, someone or something is going to choose for you. You choose what you're going to be bound to or whom you're going to be bound to. Because if you don't, you will be bound one way or another. So God gives us a choice. Choose to be bound to Christ. Choose to be bound to the Holy Spirit. Choose to be bound to the call of God. Choose to be bound to the providence of God. Choose to be bound to the will of God. And if you choose all of that, then see God direct your life from here on out. See the blessing of God come into your life because you made the choice. You'll have tremendous freedoms, but there'll be some things you will lay aside. Fine for others, but not for you. Not even things that are in of themselves wrong. Maybe good things, but the good can become the enemy of the best in your life if you're not careful. So you've got to make some choices and say, that may be okay, but it's not for me. That may be okay for others to do, but it's not for me. I'm choosing to do this for him. And when you do that, your life completely and utterly changes. Amen? Let's pray.